performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. We see here ten things that they did. It's going to be my ten sub-points. My first point this morning is victorious faith. We see the ways in which they were victorious. We're going to work through these ten things. How they conquered kingdoms. How these people had a victorious faith. In that they performed acts of righteousness, number two. In that they obtained promises, number three. And they quenched the power of fire, number four. They escaped the edge of the sword. Shut the mouths of lions. From weakness were made strong. Became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. And then tenth and finally, women received back their dead by resurrection. We see all this. I mean, the theme that, that holds all these things together is just the victorious nature of their faith. They believed God and accomplished great things for God. Consider this first one, conquering kingdoms. Many in the Old Testament conquered kingdoms. Abraham defeated Cater Leomor, rescued Lot in Genesis 14. Joshua led the people into the promised land, conquering by, by conquering in the middle and conquering the south and conquering the north. Many peoples conquering kingdoms for sure. Jonathan defeated the Philistines, as did David. David, furthermore, conquered Moab and Zobah and Ammon and Aram, smashed Sheba's result. Jehu defeated the house of Ahab and Hezekiah, turned back the onslaughts, onslaughts of Sennacherib. Just, you see the Old Testament covered with people conquering kingdoms. Performing acts of righteousness. We see victorious faith in this. How many people you can think of in the Old Testament who did acts of righteousness? Phil said, right, we could be here all day and just number the acts of righteousness that people did and we would not exhaust them at all. You get the sense here though that even by practicing righteousness or performing acts of righteousness, it's within the context of wickedness. And particularly, I think of all the judges who came along when Israel was going down in their wickedness of being oppressed and Israel called the Lord and judges came in one after another, and turned the, the nation around and conquered their kingdoms and conquered their enemies and brought back a, a reign of righteousness for a season before they would go down further again. Of Samuel, the last of the judges, it was said, talking about his righteousness, that he had not defrauded or opposed the people of Israel all his days. He was just a, an upright, righteous man, was Samuel. But this, this phrase here, even um, performing acts of righteousness, might be talking about kings who administered justice. David certainly did that. It says in 2 Samuel 8.15 that he reigned over all of Israel doing what was just and right for all his people. That, that, that's what typified his reign. He did just what was just and what was right. Or you think about Solomon, how he reigned righteously and with the wisdom that God had given him. Or Jehoshaphat, who appointed judges in all the lands, telling them, hey, judge according to God's righteousness. Let's get God's righteousness back here on the land. Or maybe you think about the, the kings who brought sweeping reforms into the land, like Hezekiah, who destroyed the idols and reinstituted the, the Passover. Or like Josiah, who repaired the temple, found the book of the law, and then bowed himself to it, submitted himself to the law, and said, we as Israel will do according to the book of the law. All these men stood against the tide, by faith, made a stand for righteousness. We ought to be like those people too. Live righteously, make a stand for righteousness. Uphold justice in all our ways. Well, thirdly, victorious faith are those who obtain promises. <laughs> it's an incredibly general statement. It's experienced by many in the Old Testament. Joshua took the land by the promise of God. And then we got done, he even said, back to the elders... He said, according to the promises that God had given us, not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you and not one of them has failed. Everything that God said has come true. We've conquered the land. God told Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men. And so by faith, Gideon went forth with the 300 men and conquered the Midianites. God told Hezekiah, I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the kings of Assyria. And by faith, he did just that. When God makes a promise, you can take it to the bank. Many Old Testament received promises, saw them fulfilled. What about the fourth one? Shut the mouths of lions. Who are we talking about here? Yes, Ethan? Daniel, Daniel of course. 
When the jealous commissioners sought to bring Daniel down, they, they sought to, to write some decree that they knew they'd get Daniel on. And they, they knew they would get him in relation to his God. But because they weren't going to get him on corruption. They weren't going to get him on evil deeds. They weren't going to get him on anything else except according to his God. May we be like people like that. The only accusation they come a bit upon us is what we do for our God. They said, here's the decree. If anyone bows down to any other king for a month, for 30 days, then King Darius, he's got to be thrown into the lion's den. And of course, Daniel disobeyed this edict. Faith, he prayed to the Lord his God like he always did, three times a day. And he was thrown into the lion's den and he was safe and sound there because God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouth. But there were others who shut the lion's mouth as well. Samson tore a lion to pieces with his bare hands. David killed a lion with a sling in the pasture. Could have been referring to them. I think it's got a primary reference to Daniel for sure. But that's by faith that Daniel was protected. Quench the power of fire. Who are we talking about here? Three guys. Yes, Nathan. Good, good. The punishment for not bowing down to this big golden idol that Nebuchadnezzar made, 90 feet tall, was they'd be thrown into the fire. Listen to their statement of faith. They're standing before the king, about to be thrown to their death. The king says, okay, you got one more chance. I'll play the music. You come and you bow before the statue. You're going to do it? And they said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if He does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set. And so into the furnace they went. The fire didn't harm them. Instead, they walked about in the midst of fire with no harm. When they finally came out, as Phil read, no effect. No hair was singed. Their clothes weren't damaged. No smell of smoke on their clothes at all. God protected them. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. Lots of people escaped the edge of the sword. I think of David, who escaped the end of the spear. Saul tried to spear him several times, and he was out even in the wilderness, escaping the edge of the sword. Elijah fled when Jezebel sought to kill him. Elisha fled when the king of Israel wanted to kill him during a famine, thinking maybe he brought the famine upon them. Ezra in the caravan brought a safe journey to Jerusalem, refusing the king's protection, seeking protection rather from the Lord. Those who built Nehemiah's wall, built with one hand with their tools and held a sword in the other hand to protect them, and God protected them from the sword. And there's plenty of saints down through the history who, by faith, were spared death when others were pursuing them. From weakness were made strong. Our seventh example here of victorious faith. Remember the, the war with Amalek? Moses holding up his hands. We held up his hands. The Israelites won the victory. But, but when he got tired and put his hands down because his hands were heavy, is what it said. I mean, you, you can try that for a while, but you try holding your hands up for an hour or so. They start, start getting heavy and he couldn't hold his hands up anymore. And then Amalek started coming back and he was weak. And so what did they do? Two guys held up his hands, right? Remember their names? Aaron and Hur held up his hands. So his hands were here. But he was weak. They held up his hands. And Israel then was made strong. A great example of this, we've mentioned it, is Gideon's 300 men conquered the Midianites. And intentionally, we saw that last week, right? Take it down from 30,000 because God says, that's too many. You might boast in yourself. Let's take it down to 300 so that you can from your weakness, be made strong. Or Samson was strong, became weak when they cut his hair, gouged out his eyes. And just that one last time, right, he became strong from his weakness. Or David, the youngest of Jesse's children, became king of Israel. He was the weakest. Hezekiah was about to die, but God granted him 15 years of life. The Hebrew young men, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, taken into exile, they said, we're not going to eat the king's choice food what they do? They just ate the vegetables and they became stronger. Their appearance seemed better than those who had been eating the king's food. From weakness, they were made strong. Became mighty in war. Another example of victorious faith. Rahab, listen to her testimony in light of how mighty Israel was in war. We have heard what you did. She's telling the two spies. To the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed... You just utterly destroyed them. We heard them and our hearts melted, is what she said. 
And certainly Joshua was mighty in war. So he took the army and took the land of Canaan. David was high on this list, becoming mighty in war. The song rang out in Israel. Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. Become how David was mighty in war. I mean, he was so successful in his military exploits that Solomon, his son, listen to this, 1 Kings 4, 24 and 25, enjoyed dominion over everything, had peace on all sides around him. Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan in the north, Beersheba in the south, all the days of Solomon. And why is it that Solomon enjoyed peace? Because David was so mighty in war that he conquered everybody all around them. But nine, put foreign armies to flight. We see this example several times in the Old Testament. Gideon comes to mind, right? 300 men blew trumpets and they banged pots and the Midianites whoom, fled their presence. During the days of Elisha, the king of Aram surrounded Samaria seeking to starve them out. In fact, it was so bad that even within Samaria, cannibalism was taking place. Mothers were killing their children so as to eat, so as to, to live. Things were so bad. And what did God do? Well, during the night, the Lord caused the army of the Arameans to hear a sound of the chariots and a sound of horses, even the sound of a great army. And just this sound. So they arose and they fled in the twilight, left their tents and horses and fled for their life. And you remember then, the four lepers were in the camp. They went out to surrender because they said, we're going to die one way or the other. Die of salvation. Might as well die by the sword. Went to surrender. Found the camp. They're totally deserted. They put foreign armies to flight by faith. And Elijah had predicted that that was going to happen that very night. Hezekiah and Isaiah also come to mind. When Jerusalem was was surrounded, Hezekiah and Isaiah prayed to the Lord. This is in in faith. right? Sennacherib's coming up. He's taunting the armies. He's right there around Jerusalem. And they pray to the Lord. They say this. Well, the end of their prayer is this. The Lord sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior, commander and officer in the camp of the king of Assyria, 186,000 of them. So here they are surrounding Israel and 186,000 die in a day. Dead. Pestilence. Somehow, they're dead. And that caused the rest to go back home. It means there are more than 186,000 surrounding this little city. Put foreign armies to flight. By faith. Faith did that. The victorious nature of faith. Also, finally... We see here in verse 35, women receive back their dead by resurrection. Two stories come to mind. Phil read both of them. The first was the the widow in Zarephath. Elijah came to this widow, stretched himself upon the child three times and called the Lord and said, Oh my God, I pray, let this child's life return. And the child came to life. A second comes during the day of Elisha. He also knew a, a widow, a Shunammite, whose son had died. Elisha prayed to the Lord. He lay on the child. I love this. Just picture this imagery, kids. He put his mouth on the child's mouth. He put his eyes on his eyes, his hand on his hand, stretched himself on him, and the flesh became warm and the child revived again. Women, by faith, receive back the dead by resurrection. Alright, I went through that really fast, didn't I? Um, we could have stopped at each of those stories and made a whole message from each of those stories. Just about the victorious nature of God's of faith, of those who have faith in God. I think a lesson for us to learn here is don't ever think that faith is a weak and powerless thing. Faith can accomplish much. Because of where our faith rests in, right? Our faith rests in God and God is a mighty God. He can do great things. And I think that the original hearers, just bringing it back now to the book of, of, of Hebrews, needed this reminder. And they were coming out of Judaism and into the church. Some believing in Jesus, some kind of checking it out, saying, hey, I'm interested, I'm intrigued, maybe. And they're getting around the Word, they're getting around God's people and seeing it. But, but there are people pulling them back into this religious system and they said, the power's back here. Right? The power's in the temple and the power's in the priests and the power's in the old covenant and the power's in Moses. That's the way we've always lived, right? We, we've always lived by the law. 
And these people had, had forsaken that to come to the church. They said, no, 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 come back to where the power is. And then you see them saying, power's in that? No, the power's in faith. It's where the victorious living takes place. Because all the saints who ever lived, lived by faith. They didn't entrust themselves ever to the power of the temple or the power of the priests. If anything, the testimony is the priests were corrupt. You don't want to go there. They weren't victorious in the exploits of the power of the law. No, it was the power of faith and trust in God, what God did. Everyone who lived a life of victory in the Old Testament lived a life of faith in the unseen. And so it's not a big jump when you go from the Judaism with all the seen to, to go to Jesus, which primarily Christianity is the faith of the unseen. I mean, we have a building, but this building isn't sacred. We have elements of the Lord's Supper we're going to celebrate with today, but they're not sacred. We, we live in, in a world where our hope is, is, is otherworldly. We don't have priests or festivals or sacrifices. And so those that, that held on to the priest, Jesus is our priest. Those that liked the temple, Jesus is now our temple. Those that held on to the old covenant, Jesus brought in the new covenant, which is way better. The law just isn't a book that's read. The law is now in our hearts. You don't need to hold on to Moses because Jesus is better than Moses. Don't hold on to the law because the law has become obsolete. Hebrews 8, verse 13. So what do you need? You need what God's people have always needed. You need faith. You need to believe and trust in Jesus. You want to live a victorious life? You want to have victorious faith? Then believe in Jesus. Now, I need to mention something here because sadly there are, there are churches that this is the only thing they preach. <laughs> Jesus, everything is there. we got power. we got victory. We're going to accomplish much. And... Um, Sometimes those places, all their music is all the same. 110 decibels. So you come in and boom! It's just loud and it's exciting and we're victorious and we're happy. Yes! Yes! That's all we are. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you do. I know that. Um, in these churches, Jesus has preached this magical solution so that everyone can become prosperous and have a successful, wealthy life. Do you know what the, the fruit of this kind of preaching is? Disappointment. Because that's not where we live. I mean, we look at all these things and say, wow, David, David had great faith and conquered kingdoms. I don't know if I could do that. These people formed acts of righteousness. Well, I know some righteousness of myself. I see that in Christ and what He's working in me. I don't know if I could have the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Meshach. And then you try, to, you try to drum this up and it's just hard. And there's disappointment that comes. You see defeat in your life or you see suffering that comes in your life. It all doesn't come out the way that you envisioned. And so what happens if everything doesn't happen exactly like you want? So, so some sin besets you. Or some financial catastrophe takes place and you're not wealthy. Or some disease takes you and you're not healthy. How are you going to deal with the church? Oftentimes, oh, you don't have faith enough. You just need to believe more. And I would say, you're just, you're just leading to disappointment. And what's so good here about Hebrews is that we're balanced in the second half of our, of our chapter, because, the second half of our text, because it gives us another aspect of faith, which is really the reality of our lives oftentimes. Which is, by the way, just as much faith as is the victorious faith that we've seen. We've seen victorious faith in verse 33 to 35. And then mid-verse, the author changes. We see a persecuted faith. Okay, Genuine faith where things go bad for somebody. Be in verse 35. I mean, we see women receive back the dead by resurrection. We've seen 33 and 34. Kingdoms conquered. Quenching power fire. Escape the disorder. It's just great. All's good. Happy and great. They fill our hearts with longings of victories. But then we see this change. No longer are the people conquering and winning victories. No longer are the great stories success. Rather, we see in verse 35b and following pains and persecutions that come as a result of faith. Let's pick it up there. Um, here we go. Others were tortured. And this is by faith. They're tortured. 
not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Do you notice a change here? We see people being tortured and mocked and whipped and chained and imprisoned and stoned and sawn in two and put to death with a sword. We see them being destitute. We see them being afflicted. We see them being ill-treated, that is, abused. We see them wandering around in deserts. We see them out in mountains. They're in caves and they're in holes in the ground. By faith, they're living that way. Why? Because they trusted God, they were tortured. You want to live a victorious life of faith? Well, believe God, it may get you tortured. That doesn't fly well in some of these churches. And it's interesting here, if they denied their faith, they would not have been tortured. That's what verse 35 says. That's the logic here. Look at here. They, others were tortured, and of these people, they were not accepting their release. Others were tortured, not accepting their release. So here, here's what it is. You've got a choice. You can be tortured or you can be released. Which do you choose? Okay. Let's try this. Asher, Asher, here he is. You're in prison, right? You can be tortured or you can be released. Which are you choosing? Released, of course. Right? Conrad, you can be tortured or you can be released. What are you going to choose? You're released. Exactly right. That's, that's the choice, right? But these people, you know what they did? You can be tortured, you can be released. They said what? Bring it on. Bring it on. They chose torture. How can that be? It's only because there's got to be this link in faith. To have been released meant they had to deny God. And deny Christ. That's what it means. Because all things considered equal, torture, release, I'll take, they'd take release. But there had to be something about the, the things attached to the release that caused them to choose the torture. And I think what it was, they needed to deny their faith. But because of their faith, they kept their faith and they chose torture instead. Something they'd never do. They'd never deny God. Such were the people who had strong faith. I think of John Bunyan, very typical of him. In fact, this is the very issue with him. He spent off and on, in and out of jail, 12 years in Bedford Prison because he preached the Gospel. And he would have been released from prison the moment he said, I won't preach anymore. I'm telling you, the moment. If he went up to a guard and said, you know what, I'm not going to preach anymore, he'd be out. That day. One time, he was at one of his trials before a a, a jury, before some, uh, I'm not sure, magistrates is what what it was. And they wanted to release him. They kind of said, I don't really want to put him in jail. But he made it clear. He says, you release me today and I will preach tomorrow. Kind of really putting it to them. And they said, we have no choice. They put him in prison. Now, he he was tortured in prison. I, I haven't written down here, but... He, he talks about how torturous it was. He says, like pulling the skin from the flesh, how hard it was for him to be in prison because he had a wife, he had some children, and particularly had a blind child who needed him so badly and he was gone for them. But he made his choice. He took his stand. He paid for it in prison. John Bunyan's faith. Yeah, great and victorious, right? Where did it land him? It landed him suffering in prison. 
And these people made their choice as well. It was a choice of faith. Faith compelled them to fear God rather than man. Faith compelled them not to fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, they feared Him who was able to kill the soul in hell as well. They had their soul in mind. Sister, Old Testament saints had the soul in mind. You see that in verse 35. Is that they were not accepting the release so that, here's the purpose, they might obtain a better resurrection. Old Testament saints with eyes on the future, eyes beyond the grave, eyes in a hope of eternal life, they'd be raised to life. There's a great story of this told in the Apocrypha, book of 2 Maccabees. The, the Apocrypha is some, some books written in the intertestamental period after Malachi finished, before Matthew was written. These are good historical books. I don't believe they're inspired, but I believe they're good history, particularly 1 Maccabees, 2 Maccabees are good history. Ought to be read. There's a man there, his name was Eleazar. He was a 90-year-old scribe who set the task of written out the Scripture. He was put on a rack and endured blows that eventually led to his death. But after some of these blows... Eliezer said, It is clear to the Lord and His holy knowledge that though I have been saved from death, temporarily, I am enduring terrible sufferings in my body under this beating, but in my soul I am glad to suffer these things because I fear Him. Here was one who feared the Lord rather than fearing men. And probably had a hope in the resurrection to come as well, even though he didn't fully understand the resurrection. Jewish understanding of the resurrection was fuzzy at best. Old Testament doesn't say much about that. Martha, in talking with, with Jesus, the sister of Lazarus who died, did say, well, I know that He will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But that's about all they knew. There was some kind of resurrection. Whereas opposed to that, the New Testament is abounding with resurrection references. The resurrection hope, which we'll celebrate in three weeks. Christ was raised from the dead. God raised Him up. See us there. We are there almost in one sense by faith. But we too will raise our bodies from the tomb. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and life. He who believes in Me will live even if He dies. Right? John 3.16 He'll give everlasting life to those who believe in Him. There is this sense about the resurrected living life that was there. And as sketchy as it was for them, they were hoping in this resurrection for them which strengthened them to endure the torture. That's the only way you're going to endure torture is if you've got something else waiting for you at the end. And so we also ought to be strengthened by the resurrection as well. Well, let's just work through verses 36, 37, and 38. And these are difficult things. But I remind you again, these are things that people experienced by faith. They experienced, verse 36, mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. Now, we know several prophets in the Old Testament who experienced these sorts of things. Jeremiah experienced these things. When he prophesied of Judah's defeat to Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, he was accused of being a traitor. He said, no, no, I'm not going to their side. I'm not a traitor. He said the officials were angry at Jeremiah and they beat him and they put him in jail. And he was there for many days. Think about it. It was his faith that said, I'm going to trust God. God told me that Babylon is going to come and, and conquer. And I need to proclaim that. And so I'm going to proclaim that. And as I proclaim that, I'm being faithful to God. I'm believing God. What's happening to me? Imprisonment. <laughs> Where's the victorious life in that? Well, it's uh, persecuted faith that comes. That was just one of several times Jeremiah was held, held captive against his will. One time he was thrown into an empty cistern, cistern where they hold the reservoirs of water, just kind of thrown down there. He had to be taken up by ropes, <laughs> pull him up, like put down in the pit. Another occasion is beaten and placed in stocks. I don't know what those stocks were, but somehow placed in a public place, public ridicule, where we get this mockings. I mean, isn't that the idea of the? New England stocks, you put someone, you punish them, you know, they put their head through their slots, put their hands there, publicly ridicule them. Because he believed God, and God said that Babylon is going to come and conquer. Even when he was true, even when it was right, and he's proclaiming, but, but see, the thing is, that's what faith does, right? Faith tells people what's right, 
and people don't want to hear what's right. And so anger comes back upon you and you suffer mockings, scourging, chains, and imprisonment. The life of faith experiences that. Remember, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Remember that? Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14.22 And here we see Jeremiah believe in God speaking out. And by the way, faith that gets persecuted is a vocal faith, by the way. Every instance. Micaiah was another prophet who was persecuted at the hands of the king he served. When Micaiah prophesied against the king Ahab, King Ahab struck him on the cheek, threw him into prison, and gave him sparing rations. Because, you know, you know, the kings are so interesting. If they have a prophet who prophesies good things for them, they're like really happy about that. But as soon as they prophesy something bad, oh, they're not good about that. So you think about it, you have a life of faith, and you're going to say what God says. If you're in a situation where God says good things, good things will go well for you. You'll live a victorious life. But if you're in circumstances where things are going bad for the king and you sell bad things, exactly, what God, then things are going to go bad for you. It's all dependent upon who you are, where you live, what your circumstances are. The same faith coming, the same message, same thing is going to be dictated and depend upon where things are going to be. But we'll get some of that later. And with the entire history of Israel be told, there'll be many other reports of, of people like this, who stood for its right, who spoke out, proclaimed the word of the Lord, and faced abuse and imprisonment for it. But I think some of the real issue is that when you write history, you don't write about all those who are persecuted, right? And all those who are imprisoned and all those... So we don't have a lot of names here, but I'm sure there are many, many names that God knows the names of the heroes who lived by faith and faced imprisonment. Never forgotten in the eyes of the Lord. Well, let's look at verse 37. Some more persecuted faith. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Let's just take these one at a time. They were stoned. Stoning was the means of public execution. In the times of the Old Testament, the, the law speaks about that. One of the examples that stands out is that of Naboth, the Jezreelite, who was a righteous man, owned a vineyard, and he refused to sell it to Ahab the king. Again, just, no, I'm not going to sell it to you. And then Jezebel says, okay, we've got to kill this guy. And so she hires the riffraff, some men to testify that he blasphemed the Lord, and though he's completely innocent, and though he protested and say, I'm innocent, they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. So much for the victorious life. Looking to live a righteous, peaceable life. Zechariah, who preached against the sin of the people of Israel, was stoned to death in the court of the house of the Lord by the decree of the king. I mean, it's okay if you're quiet, but as soon as he says, no, no, the people, you're, you're sinful, you need to turn back God's ways, that's what got him killed. It was the stronger of the faith that was killed. Sawn in two. And we don't have any written scripture, any testimony about anyone being sawn in two, but we do have some oral tradition. Does anyone know who has said they were sawn in two? You've answered a question already. You can't answer, Nathan. Anyone else? No one? Come on, give a guess. You can guess. You can guess wrong. That's okay. Isaiah. Right, good, Darcy. Isaiah, testimony has it that he was sawn in two. I was thinking about that on my way to church a little bit today. And um, just how short that was. How, sh- uh, how short till he died? He just gets on in two, right? It's terrible, awful for 10 minutes, 20 minutes. Then for eternity. But why was Isaiah sawn in two? He was talking. He was preaching. We'll come back to Isaiah a little bit more. Uh, Elijah. And uh, this next one, right? Sown into, sown into, um, where am I? Where's 37? Stone sown into, tempted, put to death with a sword. Let's, lots of them were tempted, obviously. Tempted to be quiet, probably. Tempted to shut their mouths, but they didn't. They were put to death with a sword. 
Uh, Elijah is very interesting. He escaped the edge of the sword, but when he escaped the edge of the sword, and when he was all alone, do you know what he lamented? He lamented all the nameless prophets who had died by the sword. The hand of Jezebel. So, one escapes and tells the many who were killed by the sword. King Jehoiakim himself killed Uriah the prophet with a sword when he prophesied destruction to Israel. So the prophet comes before him and says, King, the country is going to be destroyed. So the king takes out his sword and wipes him down. He's just being faithful. He's believing what God says. It's persecuted faith. We're going about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. And here we're talking about the, the number of God's people living poor, destitute lives. The testimony of Elijah was that he was a hairy man and he had a leather girdle bound around his loins. Simple clothes. Elisha followed suit and eventually that became known as the clothing of the prophet. Another prophet came into town wearing the same thing. He was identified, oh, he's got the clothes of a prophet, John the Baptist. That's how they clothed themselves. Destitute. Typical clothing of the man of God. They were ill-treated. And here, you just think about the number of saints down through the ages who were mocked, afflicted, ill-treated. There's certainly a lot. A lot that we don't even know about. But we experience some of that too. If you work, you make a stand for Christ, you can get some verbal things coming back at you. You make some statements to some neighbors and they'll come back at you. Anytime you're vocal about things, you, you can face it today. It's pretty easy. It's hard to get killed today. No, in some countries it's okay. You can get killed. In ours it's harder. But you, the more vocal you are, the more it's going to come back at you. Uh, let's look at verse 38. Men of whom the world was not worthy. We'll come back to that phrase. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Here we get a picture of God's people being refugees. Living as exiles. David, how many days did he spend wandering in deserts? Hiding from King Saul in caves. He, you know, he even out, you know, after Absalom took over the kingdom, he was running in the wilderness for his life. He was a righteous man who lived by faith. And what's happening is he's he's hiding in these caves, hoping hoping that Saul doesn't find him. During the days of King Ahab, Obadiah took a hundred prophets, hid them by fifties in a cave, provided them with bread and water. Prophets of God prophesying the truth of God because their life was at stake. They had to wander in, in caves. They needed to go underground. Elijah fled into the desert. I hope you catch some things from this. That even David, who experienced some mighty victories, still also was persecuted for his face for his faith. He he faced some devastating defeats. So, if anything I get across for you today, it's this. A life of faith doesn't always mean health, wealth, and prosperity. It often knows the pains and defeats of life. But know this, that it's during the pains that oftentimes the sweetness of the Lord comes. C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, He speaks to us in our conscience, but He shouts to us in our pains. And pains are His megaphones to rouse a deaf world. Um, If all was pleasurable, and all was at ease, and all was no problems, how much seeking of God would there be? Very little. Um, Recently read the book, because my daughter had read it, 19, no, uh, Fahrenheit 451. And uh, the premise of that book is basically kind of getting away everybody from thinking, everybody, and every, the world is just okay. And it kind of goes to this mindless nausea, nothingness, because everything's okay. Or for some of you kids, I think if you watch that Wally movie, is that what it's called? Wally? If you watch that Wally movie, what happens when everything's okay? The guys are all sitting on their beach chairs, you know, doing nothing. 
They're not seeking God. They're just their pleasures. But see, it's in the pains of life where God is sought and where God is found. And that is true of David. Think about what grabbed David's heart. See, when everything was going well, God lost sight of, David lost sight of God and got sight of a woman. And that destroyed everything. And then he went out in the wilderness and there is where he sought for God again. Uh, in our prayer meeting, we're going over fighter verses. Um, which are, our verses help us in our sanctification. So if you'd come join us at 9 o'clock in the family room out there, we'd love to have you. Our fighter verse this week is from James chapter 1, verse 2. And I'm encouraging all the people, about 30 of us here this morning, to, to come and memorize those verses. And the verse here was, Consider all joy when you fall into trials. Because you know what trials are going to produce. It's going to produce a steadfastness and a hope and a wisdom. And see, it's when the pressures and the difficulties come, that's when we grow. And that's why we can consider it all joy in those occasions. Psalm 63 is composed in the wilderness. Listen to what uh, David says. O God, You are my God. I will seek You earnestly. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh yearns for You in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Here He is in the wilderness. He's got nowhere else to go, but He's seeking God for safety and saying, God, I'm seeking You. In the palace, he wasn't seeking God. But in difficulties, he was. So trials are a big blessing times. Thus, David writes, I've seen you in the sanctuary and to see your power and glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. He's finding God's loving kindness in the midst of the wilderness when he's being sought down by Saul or by Absalom. We don't know which time he was there. He's finding joy and finding God's loving kindness is better even than his life. Ready to die in the wilderness. May we rich, fat Americans need some of that experience to stir us on. So, David says, I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands into your name. And it goes on. We can can go more. But just as a hunger for God. And when did David get that? In the trials of life. That's where he got it. And God will, by your faith, bring some trials sometimes. By your faith you get trials. As Jesus said in John 15, that those who bear fruit, right? I prune that they might bear more fruit. I bring more trials upon them that they bear more. One of the songs this morning is the same thing. When peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, right? when it's peaceful, that's okay. When sorrows come, whatever my lot, God, You have taught me to say it's well with my soul. And though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed His own blood for my soul. Where are you going to find solace? You're going to find solace in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You know, you stand there completely justified. That's where you can say it's well with my soul. And Horatio Spafford, he wrote these words in a time of trial. Maybe you remember the story of this, is that his wife and children were on an ocean liner going from America across the pond to, to Europe and the ship went down. And then the other ship, he took another ship coming back another time. It was right the moment when he's passed the same spot where the ship went down. He says, you know what? The trials come, Satan, buffet up. I'm secure in trusting in Jesus. You're going to find your hope in trials. And he says, My sin, oh, the blissless, glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole was nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. So when the trials come, that's when, you, that's when you find where your real hope is. And that's where you find where your real joy is. And through the sorrows of life, there often comes a longing for something beyond this life. And Lord, haste the day when my face shall be sight, and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, the Lord shall descend. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Even so, it is well with my soul. See, that's the measure of faith, really. When things crumble around us, do we find significance and hope in the things around us? Or do we find significance and hope in a trust in God? You know, and that... We can bring it to our lives as well. I mean, real, real easy like. Yeah, there are those who have great faith and do great things for God. I mean, 
Uh, you think about people, maybe your heroes, who've got some great successful ministries, right? Big buildings, large churches, many resources, lots of people coming to Christ, sending missionaries out all over the world. There are people like that. Those are the ones who have victorious faith. And for everyone with victorious faith, there are a dozen with persecuted faith. Because there's also another same group of people, another group of people, they have the same faith, only their experiences are different. Rather than conquering the world in Jesus' name, God has just composed their ministry so they are tortured and beaten, imprisoned and killed for their faith. Particularly overseas, uh, other, other nations where there's persecution, Rwanda, Ethiopia, India, portions of that, Nepal, there's some of that, communist nations, Muslim nations, there's, there's a lot, a lot going on. And for any mega church, pastor, successful one, there are many more who are small, faithful men who are experiencing difficulties in their life. It's interesting. So you say, okay, who, who should we put up on a pedestal? Those who live victorious faith lives, those who live persecuted church lives. Who do we put up on the pedestal? Who speaks at all the conferences? Who has all the people? Who buys all the books? Who? It's the victorious faith people, right? I mean, that's what, that's what we want. But you know what? I do believe that God puts up the persecuted faith people on a pedestal because of this parenthetical comment here in verse 38. Men of whom the world was not worthy. That didn't come talking about David. That didn't come talking about Abraham. That didn't come talking about Moses. This is talking about the guy you never knew who was martyred for a stand for Christ. That person is not worthy in the world of the world from God's perspective. God looks down with a sympathetic and caring eye upon people who are living a persecuted faith. So what's the difference between a a victorious faith and a persecuted faith? I would say really there's no difference in the faith. No difference. The faith of one is the faith of the other. The difference though is the times, locations, and giftedness of the people who are in those circumstances. Like, Like think of Isaiah. Isaiah saw this wonderful vision of God. I mean, that few have ever seen. The holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The seraphim surrounding the throne. The, the, the train of the robe filling the temple. It's just filling with smoke. And the foundation of the threshold trembled. And Isaiah was broken. He says, woe is me, for I'm undone. And an angel takes the coal from the altar. And he touches his lips and cleanses him. And then God says, who shall I send? And, and Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And so God says, okay, Isaiah... You're the most righteous man in the land. Here's your commission. Go and tell this people. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, return and be healed. In other words, he's saying this. You go and preach, and you make them harder than ever before. What you say doesn't soften their hearts. What everything you say is just going to harden them deeper and deeper and deeper. And Isaiah, you go do that. And Isaiah understands how long. He says until all the cities are devastated, until houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. You preach until you destroy everything. There will be a there will be a stump. So you'll be encouraged with a little bit. But you just be faithful in that, Isaiah. You're going to have a little remnant. That's a hard call, right? In some ways, such a ministry takes more faith than the successful ministries, right? I mean, the easy call is when God does wondrous things through you, right? If you knew... Uh, um, I was listening to a message on uh, Hebrews 11 last night and uh, Matt Chandler used a great illustration. If you knew that you were the next Billy Graham... Seminary would be easy. Ministry would be easy because you knew that you're going to go. But, but what if you knew that you were going to be the next Jim Elliot? Is that be easy? Or are you going to be the next Adoniram Judson? Give your life of suffering for a people. Being a Billy Graham and famous, and that's easy. Because <laughs> it kind of builds on itself. 
It's easy. But to be one who goes down and eventually dies a painful death, that's hard. Uh, I'm thinking of a missionary I know in Ireland. It's a friend of Yvonne and I. He grew up in Ireland. I think he came to the United States for school, was converted to the United States, went to seminary, went back to Ireland as a missionary, back to his home. A little bit like, not quite, St. Patrick a little bit, not really, but because he was from England, captured in Ireland, brought back, and then went back to Ireland. But he's, he's Irish, and so going back there, and uh, this man's one of the most faithful evangelists I know. Puts me to shame. He's in Ireland several times a week. We get newsletters. I love reading his newsletters. Several times a week, he's knocking on doors, just talking with people, and talking with people, and talking with Well, if you know Ireland, Ireland's like a rock-hard place. You know how many people are in this church? He's been there maybe a decade. How many people in his church? <laughs> I, was, I was guessing ten, maybe. Um, that's brutal ministry. That takes more faith than doing what I'm doing. But what's he doing? He's getting on the hard soil. What's the difference between him and St. Patrick? If you read Patrick's Confessions, you'll find he's pretty evangelical. Not a lot different. What happened was God used St. Patrick in a great way for Ireland. And God's using our friend just to, just to put the word out there so as to soften soil maybe a little bit. But both are men of faith. Much of the difference between them is where God has placed them to minister. And so I think much of your experience depends on how God has made you and where He has placed you as well. Well, the call of Hebrews 11 isn't the call have necessarily have, a, have faith to do great things. The call of Hebrews 11 has the call to have faith and to persevere in that faith whatever comes your way. And oh, may God give us victories like Abel who worshipped and, and Noah who was bold and Abraham was willing to give up all and Moses with his mentality regarding possessions. He gave up all the treasures of Egypt. And the discernment of Rahab who saw the hope in Israel's God but if God apportions us another lot of suffering by faith, may God give us the strength to endure. May God give us the strength to endure. The tortures, the mockings, the scourgings, the chains, imprisonment, whatever afflictions come the way of a follower of Christ, may they not pull us from the way. Well, one of the most encouraging things about this text has to be Jesus Himself. If you say, okay, which category is Jesus on? Was Jesus a victorious faith or was Jesus a persecuted faith? Oh, he knew victory. He fed the thousands. They wanted to make him king. But he discerned that they were just in it for the food. Actually, they turned on him later. He rode in Jerusalem, experienced the victory. Crowds, Hosanna, Hosanna, bless us who comes in the name of the Lord. Yes, he's our king. Come, Jesus, rescue us. And within a week, they're saying, crucify him, crucify him. And at the end of his ministry, how many did he have? Big, successful? 120 followers. Probably all left. Jesus was by far persecuted. He experienced the persecuted faith. If we want to follow our King, that's probably the path we will follow.